It's a pleasure to be with you guys today. And if you can, please go ahead and turn your Bibles. Go to 2 Peter. Go to 2 Peter. We're going to look at chapter 2. 2 Peter. And as you know, we have been studying the book of 2 Peter. And I'm going to read a verse, and I'm going to read this because this is going to be a launching point. Now, I'm not preaching specifically from this text, but I'm pulling a particular theme or topic that we find in Scripture, particularly a topic on demons. This is a study of demons, Satan and demons, what we call demonology. The context here has to deal with false teachers among the people when God is talking about, or excuse me, Peter is talking about how God is going to preserve his people. And he gives an example. But again, the point of what I'm trying to communicate here, because it brings up the topic of demons. And it says here in 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 4, For if God did not spare angels who sinned, now these are demons, by the way. Just want to make sure we're all on the same page. But cast them into the pit and delivered them to chains of darkness being kept for judgment. And so what we see is that God will judge demons. Let us open up in prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you, God, for your goodness. And Lord God, I recognize that I'm simply a man, a man who is in need of your spirit, a man who is in need of your power to communicate your truth. Father, I pray God, we know that there is no new revelation. It is an old revelation. But God, I pray for new and fresh application of your revelation today to your people. Lord, I pray that you would open hearts to hear, to receive, and that their minds, Lord, would be renewed. Father, I pray that Christ and Christ alone is exalted. Father, I pray that we're not gaining our understanding based on the world and its opinions, Lord, but to wholly trust in you. God, your word tells us there is no wisdom, there is no understanding, there is no counsel against your truth. So, Father, we are here to receive and to hear what your spirit says. So we dedicate this time to you, and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I have been selected for this wonderful topic, demonology. And the first thing I want to ask, when you think about Satan and demons, what's the first thing that you think of? Maybe you think about a red character with a pitchfork <laughs> and a tail. Maybe that's what you've been, maybe that's what you think, think of, excuse me. 
Or maybe if you're a little bit older and you were around in the 70s, you remember an old movie called um, The Exorcist. Kind of scary. There's this uh, young girl who has been demon-possessed. In order to get this demon out of her, a Catholic priest goes and he tries to exorcise the demon out of her. Or maybe you're a little bit more modern and you watch movies like Constantine. And he has this uncanny ability to be able to see into the spiritual realm, to be able to see the forces of good and evil fighting against one another. And he's like this demon hunter to go out and trying to kill demons. Or maybe you like the TV show Supernatural deals with a lot of the occult and things of really darkness. Or maybe you've seen movies like Hellboy. This is a demon who fights good battles. (laughs) And what do all of these have in common? They're not scripture. They're not the word of God. And unfortunately, we have a world that is being taught things about the supernatural based on their opinions and our thoughts. What I want to communicate to you today is that when we're talking about demonology or Satan, it is very important that we go to the word of God to have a fully informed understanding of what we're dealing with. And not only that, many of you maybe have heard stories or testimonies from people who have come to you and said, hey, I had this demonic experience. And I don't want to be dismissive of people's experiences, but again, we have to make sure that the word of God is informing us on what is true. Satan, demons, they're real. And believe it or not, you are the target. Now, as I say that, you're thinking, oh, Ty, you're trying to scare us today. No, I'm not trying to scare you. That's not my goal. My goal is to exalt Christ and that you would be fully informed in understanding your position in Christ and what Christ has done for you. Because if you know what Christ has done, you walk in the freedom that Christ has given. Now, we're talking about demonology, and I have, should I say, a lot of scripture to cover. I don't normally preach with PowerPoint, but today we're going to do it. And I'm hoping that you guys would, you know, take a picture. And some of these things, you're probably going to want to have to study a little bit more fully. And I would also just recommend, if you go get Biblical Doctrine by Mayhew and MacArthur, it's a very well-informed understanding of what demonology is and who is Satan and who are angels. So I would, I would encourage you to get that. But I have about 45 minutes, well, about 40 now. So we're going to try to do our best. But when we're thinking about Satan, he has many names. And I'm getting this from the biblical doctrine book, but there's 29 names that are listed for the name of Satan. And I want to read these to you. He's known as Abaddon. He's known as accuser, adversary, angel of the bottomless pit or angel of the abyss, Apollyon, which means destroyer, 
Beelzebul, Belial, devil, dragon, enemy, evil one, father of lies, the God of this world, king, Leviathan, liar, Lucifer, lying spirit, murderer, prince of the demons, prince of the power of the air, roaring lion, ruler of this world, Satan, serpent, spirit, star, strong man, and tempter. What's also striking about these different names, it's also how he functions in the world. He is the father of lies, meaning that he has come to manipulate and to deceive. He is the tempter. He is the one who lures you to do things that are contrary to the very character of who God is. And his desire is to make you stumble in your faith. But again, my goal was not for you to fear Satan, but I, my goal is that I want you to be informed because I want you to understand that when you're dealing with the enemy of your soul, Satan and his demonic forces that attack, that he's namely or mainly going to have against you is going to be your mind. It's your mind. What do you think? And so Peter he says in 1 Peter 1.13, Therefore, having girded your minds for action, being sober in spirit, fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. In other words, you are to prepare your mind. You are to be saturated with Scripture, saturated to such a degree that you think that every thoughts of God, everything that you do is in accordance to that truth. But that takes preparation. That takes action. This is what God wants of us. Again, my, when we're talking about Satan, I don't want you to walk away from today's um, sermon, lecture, whatever you want to call it, with a preoccupation of, oh, where is Satan? Is he behind the door? Like, what's going on? What's he going to do? I don't want you doing that. I want you to see Satan in his relationship with Christ. So my points have to do with Christ. My goal is that I want to exalt Christ. I want you to see the beauty, the glory, and just how wonderful our Savior is. I want you to look at the enemy and say, my Christ is better. And he's better. <laughs> he's mightier. And that's my Savior who fights for me. I want you to understand exactly who Jesus is. And my first point today is Christ's creation. Satan, in relation to Christ, is his creation. He's also Christ's servant, meaning that he bit or he does the very will of Christ. And we're going to talk about that more. But also to understand, as I, also, as I already read in 2 Peter 2.4, about Christ's judgment. There's a judgment that awaits. There's a judgment that awaits. Again, my goal is that I want to exalt Christ, but I want you to understand that Christ is greater than Satan and demons. When we think about Christ and how he related to demons, remember, he didn't 
um, exercise demon by putting a crucifix on a demon-possessed person's head. No, he cast them out by a word. When he sent his disciples out, he, he gave them power to cast them out. How? By a word. When we look at Paul the apostle in Acts chapter 16, when he's being approached by a demon-possessed fortune-telling woman, he says, come out in the name of Christ. What I want you to see is that Christ is greater. There is no fight. And un, un, I mean, it's unfortunate, but many times we think about Satan and demons. We think about uh, uh, two boxers in a ring. In this corner is Satan, one who is called the prince of the power of the air. And in this corner, we have the prince of peace, as if there are two guys who are about to go at it and throw jabs and haymakers. But no, there is no fight. Satan is Christ's creation. And I want to get this out at the very beginning because one of the frequently asked questions is, well, can a Christian be demon-possessed? No. I'm just going to set it straight. No, I'm not talking about a lot about demon possession tonight. We're going to talk a lot more about the mind, but I, want to, I just want to make sure you understand this. Can Satan possess a born-again, spirit-filled believer. No. First John 4.4. 4. You are of God, little children, and have overcome them, because greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. First John 5.18. We know that whoever is born of God does not sin, but he, that is Christ, who was begotten of God, keeps him, and the evil one does not touch him. Hebrews 2.14, therefore, since the children partake of flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same, that through his death, he might render powerless, render powerless the one who had the power of death, that is, the devil. In Romans 8.37-39, yet in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who saved us. And Paul says, for I am persuaded or I am convinced that neither angels nor principalities nor powers nor things present nor things to come nor things uh, present, nothing or no created thing is able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. If you have believed in uh, the work of Jesus, his death, his burial, his resurrection, and you have repented, turned from your sins and entrusted yourself to his lordship and been sealed with the spirit of God. No, you cannot be controlled. You cannot be possessed by the enemy of your soul. But again, back to my first point, Satan in relation to Christ is Christ's possession. He is owned. Turn your Bibles to 1 Kings, or excuse me, Ezekiel. Ezekiel chapter 28. Ezekiel chapter 28. Now, this is a prophecy that is directed towards the king of Tyre. And if you were to look at the first 32 chapters of Ezekiel, it speaks a lot about the judgment, one, against the judgment against the nations, but also the judgment that was going to come against Jerusalem. But in the backdrop of the king of Tyre is we understand that Satan is behind this power. And as I start to read through this text, you'll start to see this 
sounds like it's a lot more than a, a, a simple man. But let me go ahead and read it to you. Ezekiel chapter 28, verse, starting at verse 11. And it says, again, the word of Yahweh came to me saying, son of man, take up a lamentation over the king of Tyre and say to him, thus says the Lord Yahweh, you had the seal of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering, the ruby, the topaz, and the diamond, the barrel, the onyx, and the jasper, the lapis lazuli, the turquoise, and the emerald, and the gold. The workmanship of your settings and sockets was in you. On the day that you were created, they were prepared. You were the anointed cherub who covers, and I placed you there. You were the whole, you were on the holy mountain of God. You walked in the midst of the stones of fire. You were blameless in your ways. From the day you were created until unrighteousness was found in you, by the abundance of your trade, you were internally filled with violence and you sinned. Therefore, I have cast you as profane from the mountain of God, and I have destroyed you, O covering cherub. From the midst of the stones of fire, your heart was lofty because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom by reason of your splendor. I cast you to the ground. I put you before kings, kings that they may see you. By the abundance of your iniquities and the unrighteousness of your trade, you profane your sanctuaries. Therefore, I have brought out fire from the midst of you. It has consumed you, and I have turned you to ashes on the earth in the eyes of all who see you. All who know you among the peoples are appalled at you. You have become terrified, and you will cease to be forever. The first thing I want to point out here in verse 13, it also in verse 15, it says that you, excuse me, you were in Eden, the garden of God. Now, if we're familiar with the scriptures, if we go to book, um, Genesis chapter three, three, what do we see? We see the serpent. We see Satan. And this is what God is addressing. He is saying that you were in the garden. This is not a man. This is not a man. But what I also want you to see is that he was beautifully adorned and perfect at his creation. Look at verse 13 again. And it names nine different um, types of like diamonds, topaz, jasper, all of these um, stones, these precious stones. He names nine. He says, all these things were on you. In other words, he's shining. <laughs> He's attracting a lot of attention. He was one of the most glorious angels. This is what God is uh, describing him. And it says, on the day that you were what? Created. He was a created being. But also look in verse 15. It says that you were blameless in your ways from the day you were created. And this is my point. When we're thinking about Satan, he is a created being. He is a created being being. But on top of that, he's also an, um, an angel. Look at verse 14 again. And it says, you were the anointed cherub. He was set apart. 
He was the covering angel. In other words, he was a guardian angel. He was there in the very presence of God. And it's very descriptive when it talks about the stones of fire. If we were to look at other texts of scripture, it gives a description of just how glorious God is. And you see just this fire, this consuming fire that is around God. But he was there in the very presence of God. But what was the problem? He was sinful and he had violence and he was also full of pride. Look at verse 16 and 17. And he says here, by the abundance of your trade, you were internally filled with violence and you sinned. And the consequence of that is that God had cast him out of the very presence of God. Now, again, when we look at this text, it is descriptive of something more than a man. It is a created being. He is an angel, very powerful angel. Nevertheless, he's still a created being. But we also, when we think about him being a created being, he is a created being who was going astray, a created being who is a liar and a deceiver. Now, I don't have time to go through every one of these texts. But again, if you're familiar with Genesis chapter three, verses one through six, what does he do? He deceives Eve. And how does he deceive her? Through the lust of the eyes, through the lust of the flesh, and what? The sinful pride of life. He lures her by something that she wants. Same thing with you. Now, I also want to put this out because when you sin, you can't say, well, the devil made me do it. No, you can't do that. He simply lures you by your very desire. If you were to look at, for instance, in James, but each one is tempted when what? He is drawn away by his own desires. You see, the enemy studies you. And he lures you based on your own desires, wants that are inordinate compared to the holiness of who God is. It's very important that you understand that. We also see that he is the father of lies. If we were to look at John chapter 8, verse 44, we also know that he was one who influenced Ananias and Sapphira when Peter had um, questioned them, when they said that they had sold their property for so much money because they wanted, to, they wanted to appear like they were holy. Like, look, look at all this stuff that we've done. Look what we sold. We're holy just like everyone else. They wanted to praise. And Peter says, why did Satan fill your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? You lied to God. It was Satan there tempting them. We also know that he is a created being who recruits and employs unbelievers. He recruits and employs unbelievers. In other words, he uses unbelievers to do his will. Turn your Bibles to 1 John chapter 3. 1 John chapter 3. And I'm going to read verses 8 through 10. The one who does sin is of the devil. Because the devil sins from the beginning, the Son of God was manifested for this purpose, to destroy the works of the devil. Everyone who has been born of God does not sin, because his seed abides in him, and he cannot sin, because he has been born of God. By this, the children of God and the children of the devil are manifested, or are they made known. Everyone who does not do righteousness is not of God as well as one who does not love his father. You see, unbelievers are owned by Satan. 
they do his will. They have a lifestyle of sin. And I'm not saying that you and I as Christians that we're perfect. Now, the Bible is also not teaching that you walk in perfection. We do not sin. If we were to study that a little bit more, the present tense is we don't have a lifestyle of sin. And I kind of liken that to when I, before I was saved, you can videotape Ty. Ty is sinning. That's, that was just Ty is sinning. But when I became saved, it was like Ty sinned. You get the point? Ty sinned here. Ty sinned there. You understand what I'm saying? So it doesn't talk about perfection. However, it does talk about um, how God makes known those who are his and those who are not. If we have a lifestyle that's characterized by a continual licentious lifestyle of sin, you are what you are. We, we can also look in Ephesians 2.2. In 2 Timothy 2.26, the context is talking about how pastors are to come alongside and patience and to um, teach truth, hoping that God would grant them repentance so that they can escape the snare of the devil. He's also a created being who opposes God. If you recall in Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 through 11, we, we see the temptation of Jesus. It says, after Jesus had finished his fasting, he was taken or led by the Spirit of God to go into the forest or the desert and was tempted for 40 days and 40 nights. He's also the one who snatches the gospel from unbelieving hearts. If you were to look at the kingdom parables in chapter in Matthew chapter 13, he is the one who snatches away the seed. He's also a reason why people do not come to a faith. He corrupts. This is what he does. He is a created being. So we understand that Satan is nothing more than a created being. But what I also want you to see is that in relation to Christ, Satan, in relation to Christ, is Christ's servant. Another way of saying that, he serves Christ in his purposes. Let me give you an example. Turn to 1 Kings chapter 22. 1 Kings chapter 22. It's almost controversial when you say that Satan is a servant of Jesus. Now, when I say servant, I don't mean in a positive sense. I'm meaning that his evil, licentious, evil desires God turns it around to carry out his perfect will and plan. For instance, if you guys were to study uh, many of the kings, many who came in to um, bring the, the children of Israel into captivity, like the king of Babylon, oh, we have the king of Persia, Cyrus, for instance, he is called in Isaiah 44, 28 and 45, one, God's servant. But it doesn't mean that he was a righteous man, it's that he was used, he was a tool, in other words, to um, carry God's will on. But I want to just give you an example here and kind of point out a few other passages. Now, the context here, Ahab is the king of Israel, and he's teaming up with Jehoshaphat, who was the king of the southern empire. And so he's asking for Jehoshaphat, hey, I want to go take some land. Will you come fight with me? And Jehoshaphat says, okay, I'll go with you. He didn't quite say it like that, but he did say, I'll go with you. And so let's go here to verse 5. 22, verse 5, 1 Kings 22, 5. But before they get ready to go out to battle, it says here, 
Moreover, Jehoshaphat, Jehoshaphat excuse me, said to the king of Israel, please inquire first for the word of Yahweh. So he wants to hear a prophet. He wants to say, okay, are we going to have success? Should we go in this battle? Let's get a prophet of Yahweh to come um, give us some encouraging words before we go out to this battle. But listen to what the king of Israel, Ahab, says. He says in verse 6, Then the king of Israel gathered the prophets together. He gathered the prophets together, about 400 men. I want you to take a note of that. And said to them, shall I go against Ramoth Gilead to battle or shall I refrain? And they say, go up for the Lord would give it into the hand of the king. But Jehoshaphat said, is there not yet a prophet of Yahweh here that we may inquire of him? In other words, I don't know what prophets and what is um, originating their, their, their ability to prophesy, but they're not prophets of Yahweh. And so he questions the king of Israel, Ahab. Is there not a prophet of Yahweh? Look at verse 7 again. Is there not yet a prophet of Yahweh here that we may inquire of him? And the king of Israel said to Jehoshaphat, There is yet one man by whom we may inquire of Yahweh, but I hate him because he does not prophesy good concerning me, but evil. He is Micaiah, son of Imla. But Jehoshaphat said, let not the king say so. Verse nine. Then the king of Israel called an officer and said, hasten to bring Micaiah, cannot pronounce that, son of Imla. Now the king of Israel and Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, were sitting each on his throne, clothed in their royal garments at the threshing floor at the entrance of the gate of Samaria. And all the prophets were prophesying before them. And Zedekiah, the son of Chenanah, <laughs> made horns of iron for himself and said, thus says Yahweh. Now get this. This is a false prophet. He says, thus says Yahweh. I want you to hold on to this thought. Thus says Yahweh. With these, you will gore the Arameans until they are consumed. And all the prophets were also prophesying, saying, thus, go up to Ramoth Gilead and succeed, and Yahweh will give it into the hand of the king. Now, verse 13. Now, the messenger who went to summon Micaiah spoke to him, saying, behold, now, the words of the prophets as if from one mouth are good towards the king. Please let your words be like the word of one of them and speak that which is good. But Micaiah said, as Yahweh lives, what Yahweh says to me, that I shall speak. Then he came to the king and the king said to him, Micaiah, shall we go to Ramoth Gilead to battle or shall we refrain? And he, that is the prophet Micaiah, said, said to him, go up and succeed, and Yahweh will give it into the hand of the king. Now, I want you to understand here what's going on. Micaiah, he's not endorsing the other prophets. What he's doing is like, yeah, he's being very sarcastic. Go for it. Yeah, you're going to win. Go for it, bro. Right on. Yeah. <laughs> Verse 14, 15. Then he came to the king, and the king said to him, Micaiah, Shall we go to Ramoth Gilead or shall we refrain? And he said to him, go up and succeed and Yahweh will give it into the hand of the king. Verse 16, then the king said to him, how many times does my make you swear that you will speak to me nothing but the truth in the name of Yahweh? And Micaiah said, I saw all Israel scattered on the mountains like sheep which have no shepherd. And Yahweh said, these have no master. 
Let each of them return to his house in peace. Then the king of Israel said to Jehoshaphat, Did I not say to you that he would not prophesy good concerning me, but evil? Then Micaiah said, Therefore, hear the word of Yahweh. I saw Yahweh sitting on his throne and all the hosts of heaven standing by him on his right and on his left. And Yahweh said, Who would entice Ahab that he will go up and fall at Ramoth Gilead? And one said this while another said that. Then a spirit came. Look at verse 21. Then a spirit came forward and stood before Yahweh and said, I will entice him. And Yahweh said to him, How? And he said, I will go out and be a lying spirit in the mouth of all his prophets. Then he said, you shall entice him and also prevail. Go out and do so. So now behold, Yahweh has put a lying spirit in the mouth of all these, your prophets. But Yahweh has spoke calamity against you. This was a demon. This lying spirit is a demon. God is sending it to the king of Israel, Ahab, to be a lying spirit. Now, what I want you to understand is why that happens. It happens because he doesn't want to hold on to truth anyway. In other words, God is giving him over to lies, and he's going to start believing, deleting, deluding truth. Let me give you another example of this. Let's turn uh, to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Because I want to show you how God is consistent in his character. And I want to start at verse 6. In context, he's talking about the lawless one, Satan. And he's talking about how he is currently restrained, but there's going to be a time when he is not going to be restrained. And it says right here, starting at verse 6, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 6. And you know what restrains him now? That is speaking of the lawless one, if you were to go to previous verses. So that in his time, he will be revealed. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. And then that lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will slay with the breath of his mouth and bring to an end by the appearance of his coming, whose coming is in accord with the working of Satan, with all power and signs and false wonders, and with all the deception of unrighteousness for those who perish because they did not receive the love of the truth. Get this, I'm gonna read this again. And with all the deception of unrighteousness for those who perish. Why? Because they did not receive the love of the truth so as to be saved. And because it is, or for this reason, God sends upon them a deluding deluding influence so that they will believe what is false in order that they all may be judged who did not believe the truth, but took pleasure in unrighteousness. This is very important. Many times, even today, you have in many charismatic circles, people who talk about, they speak on behalf of Yahweh. They speak on behalf of the Lord. You have some who would even go so far to say that, well, prophets today, they have tentative authority. 
not testing the very word that God says in Deuteronomy 18, that all things were to be tested. If a prophet speaks one thing that is inaccurate, he was to be stoned to death. That was the requirement. So yeah, if you want to prophesy based on that standard, go for it. I don't think many of us will do it. And so we have, again, what I'm trying to point out here, especially in today's church, because this can be an application. Please listen to me. Many times, someone who is speaking on behalf of the Lord is influenced by demonic activity. Now, go back to 1 Kings 22. And I was trying to get you to make a note of something. Let's look at verse 6 again. And it says, Then the king of Israel gathered the prophets together. How many? 400 men. 400 false prophets walking around Israel. Israel, when the kingdom split, did not have one righteous king, not one. They're filled with idolatry. They're filled with men who are speaking what is false. And what is behind this falseness is what? Satan and his demonic force. And this happens, why? Because they're not believing the truth. So therefore, God uses them, what, as a servant to carry out his will. In other words, he basically gives them over to their sin. This is what you want? Fine. I'm going to take you even deeper in your depravity. And this is what you're seeing many times, even in our country today. People reject truth. When you look and you see this war and this battle against transgenderism, Satan is behind it. When you see evil forces many times, Satan is behind it. I hope you guys are able to see this connection. This is important because Paul says that you are not to be ignorant of his schemes. He says, we don't wrestle against flesh and blood. No, we wrestle against powers and principalities and so forth. There are some lessons that we can learn here. I've already mentioned it, but one, demons, they're behind false prophets. God sends lying spirits to unbelievers. But it also... In 1 John 4, 1, it says that we are to test the Spirit. And how are we going to test the Spirit? It's when you take up your Bible, and when someone speaks to you, if it does not align in accordance to this truth, you reject it. You reject them, and you bring correction, and you bring the Word of God to bear witness on what they're saying, which means that you must study and be saturated with God's Word. Your mind As I started off earlier, your mind has to be prepared. There are other examples, and unfortunately, I can't go through all of these. But we also understand that an evil spirit was also sent to Saul. It says that the spirit departed, the spirit that was upon, the Holy Spirit that was upon Saul departed, and an evil spirit came upon Saul. I would encourage you, look at 1 Samuel chapter 16. This spirit, it terrorized Saul. And the men, they recognized this spirit, this demon. We also understand God's sovereignty for David to play the harp before Saul. The men had encouraged Saul, well, why don't you get a man to play the harp? And maybe that will calm you down. And God used that to bring David into the very presence of the king because he was his anointed one. Again, evil spirits, they're subservient to Christ. 
If we were to look at Job, we also can see the example of Job. It says, um, or if we were to look at Job chapter one, we see the great um, harm that came upon Job. And if you were to look at um, Job chapter one, verse 12, God had granted permission to Satan uh, the first time. And what happened? Satan, he attacks, he kills Job's firstborn. Satan attacks and attacks uh, Job's livestock. Satan used the Chaldeans to raid and take camels and kill young men. All of these things happen because of Satan, but it had to be granted by God. Now, some of you might look at this and it kind of upsets your faith. Well, how can God do something like that? But I would also point out, listen to how Job, how did he see it? Now, obviously, he didn't know everything that was going on, but let's see how did Job respond. Turn to Job chapter one. Job chapter one. And look at verse 22, or look, start at verse 21. And Job, after having this great pain and feeling this turmoil, he says, naked I came from my mother's womb and naked I shall return there. Yahweh gave and Yahweh has taken away. Blessed be the name of Yahweh. But get this, listen to what he says in verse 22. Through all this, Job did not sin, nor did he give offense to God. In other words, he didn't blame God. God, you sinned against me. No, he didn't do that. And then if you were to go on, look at verse 10, chapter two, verse 10. And his wife says to Job, why don't you just curse God and die? Listen to how he responds. He says, you speak as one of the wickedly foolish women speaks. Shall we indeed accept good from God and not accept calamity? And all this, Job did not sin with his lips. But there's also an example with, with, with Paul. I don't know if you guys caught this, but it was also in that second song that Josh sang tonight. And it says that we are afflicted, that grace, God's grace essentially is working through us. Turn your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 12. 2 Corinthians chapter 12. And I'm going to start in verse 7. I'm going to read the verse 10. And it says, and this is Paul speaking of his thorn in the flesh. He says, because of the surpassing greatness of the revelation, for revelations, excuse me, for this reason, to keep me from exalting myself, there was given me a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me, to keep me from being, exalting myself. Concerning this, I pleaded with the Lord three times that it might be that it might leave me, and he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you. For power is perfected in weakness. And Paul responds, Most gladly, therefore I will rather boast in my weakness, so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Therefore, I am well content with weaknesses, with insults, with distresses, with persecutions and hardships for the sake of Christ. For when I am weak, then I am strong. 
Now, I told you that you cannot be demon-possessed. It doesn't mean that you cannot necessarily be attacked, spiritual warfare. But you have to understand that even in those things, you have control over your faculties. Okay, but the attack is coming from without. It's coming at us. Just as Paul, he was attacked physically. But what you see here is that he didn't, oh God, why are you letting me have, why is, I'm not going to serve you. I'm just going to sit down for the rest of my life and just die. No, he doesn't do that. He recognized his weakness, but in his weakness, he understood that the more that I'm weak, the more that I have to trust in him. And see, many of you today, you might be afflicted, whether it's physically, maybe it's financially. Maybe there's a number of ways by the way you're afflicted. But even in that, now, obviously, I'm not going to sit there and say a demon's behind every little thing. I'm not saying that. But I want you to understand that you can still have that same posture that Paul had when he's able to say that when I am weak, to God, you are strong. That when I am weak, that the grace of God, I have to trust him more. I have to pray more. I have to read my word more. Because I have to trust him that much more. My third point, Satan's relationship to Christ is that he will be judged. So the last thing we see is Christ's judgment. Christ's judgment. Turn your Bibles to Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3. Now, this happened, this is right after Satan or the serpent has tempted Adam and Eve. They sinned against God, and now God is bringing judgment. (laughs) And he says in verse 14, And Yahweh God said to the serpent, that is uh, Satan, Because you have done this, cursed are you more than any of the cattle, and more than every beast of the field, on your belly you will go, and dust you will eat all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the hill. This is the gospel right here. God is saying that there is going to be one, the seed, who is going to crush Satan under his feet. If we were to look at Galatians chapter 3, we recognize Paul uses um, this text to point out that Jesus was that seed. At the very beginning, in Genesis chapter 3, we see the judgment of God on Satan. This is going to be your future. And then we see the judgment that happens on Calvary. It's when Jesus is on the cross. And at that particular point, when he dies... He renders powerless the enemy of our souls by his death. Turn your Bibles to Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1. And I want to look at verse 13. Colossians chapter 1 verse 13. I should get in the right book. And it says, speaking of Christ, who rescued us from this authority of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of the son of his love. 
Look at Colossians 2, look at verse 15. Speaking of Jesus again, having disarmed the rulers and the authorities, he made a public display of them, having triumphed over them in him. Again, at the cross, Jesus renders Satan powerless. What that means for you and I is that Satan no longer has power over us like he once did. We have been transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light, the kingdom of Christ. Christ has freed us that we are able to walk in the righteousness that he requires of us. But there's more. There's judgment also during the tribulation. Turn to Revelation chapter 12. Revelation chapter 12. In the book of Revelation, chapter 6 to chapter 18, it's, it's the tribulation period. It's about a seven-year period. And in chapter 12, there's a war that's going on in heaven. And it says in chapter 12, verse 7, And there was war in heaven, Michael and his angels, that is an angel, waging war with the dragon, that is um, Satan. The dragon and his angels wage war. And they were not strong enough, and there was no longer a place found for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, the serpent of old, who was called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. Then I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come for the accuser. The accuser of our brothers has been thrown down. He who accuses them before our God day and night. There's judgment, meaning that he will no longer have access to heaven. And I don't know, I didn't have time to read on everything in Job, but it shows or displays that Satan had access to actually go before the very presence of God and to accuse. That's what we see happening. We see that same thing in Zechariah. He's the one looking at Joshua, the high priest, and he is accusing him that he's an unclean man. He is the accuser of the brethren. But at this particular time, in the future, he's going to be cast out, no longer having any access to God. And he is going to be fully roaming and terrorizing the earth. And then we see the judgment at the millennium. I'm just going to sum these things up. The millennium is... Christ's thousand-year reign, and Satan will be bound for a thousand years, and Christ is going to rule and reign out of Jerusalem, and all nations will bow down to him. The whole earth is going to be under the authority of Christ. And then after that thousand years is over, then the Satan will be released. He's going to be allowed to go back out and to kind of um, deceive other people. But then going into the eternal state, there's a final judgment that comes upon Satan. If we were to look at Revelation 20.10, he is going to be thrown into the lake of fire forever and ever and ever, no longer having access to torment and deceive the world. That's his judgment. That's his judgment. Now, how are we to respond? Like when we think about demonology, how are we to respond? And I think I want to communicate that if you're an unbeliever here today, you have to understand based on what the word of God tells us, the Bible, you are under the power of Satan. You are in the kingdom 
of darkness. You have no choice and you are not strong enough to fight against him. You need one to fight on your behalf. And if you're an unbeliever today, or if you're not sure about where you stand today, I have to warn you that if you continue in that path, that what awaits you is the same thing that's going to befall Satan. That is hell, eternal separation from God. And I would beg you, friend, that you are to put your faith, your trust, fully, completely in what Jesus has done. Jesus talked about he is the stronger man who has come to bound the enemy. And that is the only way that you can be transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. But most of you here, I have to believe, are Christian. How are we to respond? You have to understand that we have a superior Savior. Hebrews 2.14, I read that before. Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is, the devil. 1 John 5.18 says, We know that no one has, who has been born of God sins, but he who was begotten of God keeps him, and the evil one does not touch him. We have a superior Savior. But not only that, we have a superior spirit. That is Christ's spirit that is in us. First John 4, 4, you are from God, little children, and have overcome them because greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. But not only that, we have a superior savior. We have a superior spirit. We also have a superior armor. Turn your Bibles. I'm going to close with this. Ephesians chapter 6. Ephesians chapter 6. And I'm going to read starting in verse 10. And I want you to just listen to the words. And I'm going to finish verse 18. And then I'm going to pray. And it says here, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the might of his strength. Put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. For Therefore, take up the full armor of God so that you will be able to resist in the evil day and having done everything to stand firm. Stand firm, therefore, having girded your loins with truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. In addition to all, having taken up the shield of faith with which you would be able to extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one, also receive the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times with all prayer and petition in the Spirit, and to this sin, being on the alert, with all perseverance and petition for all the saints. Father, we thank you for your truth. And Lord, as you have commanded us to be strong, God, I pray that we will be strong in the grace that you provide, not on our own, 
Father, I pray that we would have the shield of faith. I pray that we would have the helmet of salvation and a sword of the spirit, God. And I pray that we would saturate our minds, Lord God, with your truth through the preaching and teaching of your word, through our own Bible study, through our conversations. God, may we be built up and edified. And Father, I pray, keep us from the evil one. May we look to you. In Jesus' name, amen.